0: And we are encountering a rather long section of text today. So this is what I want to do. I want to read uh, 14, 15 verses of it. And then we're going to begin to walk through and really understand, hopefully, and, and recognize how incredibly tremendous God's love is. And on the basis of how incredibly amazing and tremendous His love is, what, therefore, He is calling us to do. So if you'll follow along with me. Starting in verse 7 and reading through verse 21. John writes, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. But beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is also, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he has first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Man, our kids, our two older boys have recently started playing baseball. And I recognize that I did not hand them down a tremendous amount of athletic prowess, um, which is both a poor reflection on me and, and the memories I have of formerly playing baseball. And this understanding that when they go to practice, and their coach is just yelling out things like, Choke up on bat! You know, hey, we're playing down here. We're not playing out in the party a lot. You know, or whatever it is. They're like, I, I don't understand the vocabulary you're using. Now, from a five-year-old and an eight-year-old, of, that's saltier than I thought it would be. You know, and so they're, they're not really understanding what he's saying, and, and they're not really into it. So he's like, you got a round second. You got to head third. He's like, round second. And so he's like running around. No, no, that's not what they're talking about. Like, you got to hold up. He got to force the plate. got to force like they're big time into Star Wars. So they're like, very cool. There's a force at the plate. I don't see it. Like, I don't see this force. What's he talking about? But recognize that, that in some sense, knowing the right vocabulary would greatly enhance their ability, one, to enjoy baseball, and number two, not be so bad, right? Not be so bad. And so what John does in this is he gives us a command. He gives us a command, but he moves right from the command to making sure we understand exactly why we can do these things and exactly how we can do these things. And so when my kids stand in there and they're up at the plate and he says, you know, scoot forward in the box. They're like, which box? There's like the the field is a box. This is a box. Which box? He's like, "The, the one at your feet right there. so It's this white chalk line around you. And so they're moving forward, they're moving closer to the plate this way, they're moving back in the box, and now they're square dancing, right? And so it doesn't make sense for them, just like it would not make sense for us if God were to give us a command and not explain how we're to follow up. Understand this. The command in 7 through 21 is incredibly simple to understand, but incredibly difficult to apply. Look what he says here. Beloved, Let us love one another. He stops. This is it. This is the command. Now I'm going to give you free permission. Anybody in here, if you're destroying this, if this, if you're just owning what it is to love one another, go early to lunch. Go early to lunch, and write me an email and let me know how you figured this out. But. What he says in this is, let us love one another. So he writes to a whole church and he says, this is what we should do. We should be this community, this congregation who is absolutely engaged in loving one another. But what John and what we are so incredibly aware of is that we are so much more prone to passive indifference than active engagement. Passive indifference. We see people out there and we know they have needs. We know in some sense that we can meet these needs and our hope is the Holy Spirit would move somebody else to meet these needs, right? Passive indifference. Our activity is only engaged in hoping for intercession on their behalf, but we don't want it to cost us anything. Let me tell you something. Love for someone else costs you something. You cannot love those people around you and have it not cost you something. Love for those people around us is going to cost us something. It is going to demand sacrifice in our hearts. It is not passive indifference. It is active engagement. Let us love one another. He moves through the next uh, bits of this and begins to tell us why. Now look at this. He says, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then he gives us the opposite. He says, if anyone doesn't love, he doesn't know God because God is love. Christian. Christian, you have been born of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, that your heart didn't beat for God, that it beat for yourself. God came in and he ignited your heart to beat for him. God has given you life. If you are a Christian, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, your heart beats for him. It does not beat for you. And because your heart beats for him and it does not beat for you, you find yourself doing things that God would do. God is love. If you're a Christian and you are terrible at loving those around you, this is what that's an indication of. You are not very close to God. You are not very close to God. If we see people who desperately need our love, need our help, need our intervention, and we just say, I don't want it, I'm done with them, I want nothing to do with them, what this is an indication of is not God's failure, but our own. Do you see this? So he gives us this understanding that those character traits that our God's, God is love, are passed down to us. I was not a great ball player, but I played a lot of ball, right? I rode the bench a lot. My kids likely are not going to be great ball players, and I hope that they enjoy being out there and being yelled at a little bit. But our God is amazing in love. Our God has no deficiency in love. He has no shortcoming in love. His love is perfect, and we are his children. We have his image. We have his mission, and we are called to engage one another lovingly. We're called to do this in love, and so we recognize this quality of God's love is intrinsic to him. It is an essential characteristic and quality of who God is, and so it has to be an intrinsic and exceptional quality of who we are. Look what he says there. If you don't love, if you don't love those Christians around you, then you should really be asking this question in your heart Am I a believer in faith in Jesus Christ? I mean, if we can see our brothers and sisters in need, and I'm not talking about just this church. Like if you know of a Christian in need and you have the ability to meet that need and you look at it and say, I don't want anything to do with them. And you have to ask yourself, whose heart is beating in your chest? Because God's heart only beats for love, never for selfishness. And what he gives us in 9 through 11 is this understanding that God has this exemplary display of love. He says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that he sent his son That he sent his son so we might live through him. And so we recognize that the the primary area, the primary way that God displays his love is in the sending of Jesus. He sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. All the ways the Christian lives is through Jesus. If you find yourself living and engaging through Jesus, then you're going to find people in need. And you're going to have this inability to overlook their need and to skip on to something you'd rather do. When you begin to recognize the need in others based on the prompting of God's love moving through your heart and you're living for him, we will find ourselves sacrificing and engaging. And we have this inability to be passive and indifferent. His love is exemplary. His love is exemplary. We have to observe his love. One of the amazing things, watching these kids over and again each week hit, is they're not looking for the best hitter in observing this guy and saying, he's got a nice flat swing, he's got power, he's driving with the hips, he's turning, his hips lead his arms. What they look at is who has the coolest stance. And so it's his kid, he's got the foot up there and he's just kind of doing this number. He's tapping as the ball's coming in. It's the kid who's got the twirl with the bat doing this number. And so they're looking for this and you can see them get up there and they're like, whoa! Falling all over themselves, trying to mimic and do those things they see their friends doing. Why? Because it's cool. Has it made them a better hitter? No. They're not worried about hitting. They know they're going to strike out. What we tend to find ourselves doing is we look at those Christians that everybody else looks up to. We look at those people in this church and other churches that everybody else looks up to. We don't ask the questions of what is their walk with Jesus. We ask the question of how readily are they accepted by everybody else. Are they popular? Are they likable? And we want to be them. The exemplary example for a Christian is Jesus. The exemplary example for a Christian is Jesus and his sacrifice. It's amazing. Now look at the degree to which he loved. The end of verse 10 says, it's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Man, can I tell you, it's hard to love somebody who doesn't love you back. It's incredibly hard, it's incredibly exhausting to love somebody who doesn't love you back. If you've never been in a relationship like that, it's taxing, it's exhausting. And you find yourself waking up in the morning, just, man, I wish they would return my love. I wish they would return my love. Maybe I should just bow out of this. I wish they'd return my love. And so we do more grand, we do more extravagant things trying to get their love to come back to us. This is who we all were in salvation. This is who each and every one of us was in salvation. God did not look down from heaven and see people disposed towards him, moving towards him. But he looked down from heaven and saw all of humanity moving away from him. And he initiated this great love towards us. To those of us who were incredibly undeserving, unmoved, and disinterested. Our God has engaged us with this love, and so to this exemplary display of love, we are called to display and to engage. This, in some sense, is how we love one another. We find those who do not want our love, who do not want our affection, and we move towards them with the affectionate love of Jesus, extending them to them again and again and again. Recognize in verse 12 that the love of God is both revealing and testifying. It's both revealing and testifying. Look at what he writes there. He says, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. God has never displayed himself physically. And so we, we have to wonder then, how can someone come to know God? And John gives us this response. He says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the picture John gives us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we will come together, and love one another well, we show everybody in our community Jesus. This is how we do this. One of the reasons people are so quick to doubt God, so quick to doubt Jesus, is because their interaction with churches is infighting and, and, and being money hungry and wanting pride and wanting prestige and, and not wanting to be those who get our hands dirty. They hear about those of us who have grudges with other brothers and sisters in Christ and they hear in that no distinct difference from their workplace. They hear in that no distinct difference from any other relationship they've ever had but the picture of what it looks like for Christians to display God that our great God may be seen, might be manifested and displayed in our love for one another. I want you to imagine for a second how incredibly transformative that is, not for this church, but for the churches of our community. For the churches of our community. If we begin to love one another, and in loving one another, we're sacrificing for other brothers and sisters in Christ, and in doing that, we also find God moving in our hearts to sacrifice and to give up things for the lost people in our community. And people begin to look and say, man, those Christians are really different. Like they find themselves not being self-serving jerks that I always presume them to be. I find them not being this way, and I find them giving up things they need so that other people's lives can be easier, so they can be better. This is what it is to love. And when we love, we have a chance, we have an opportunity, a calling to display the love of God, in fact, to display who God is. Recognizing in 13 through 16, our God's love abides. John starts and he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. God's love abides in us a variety of different ways. God's love abides in us. We find our rest in him. We find our belonging in him because his spirit is testifying that we belong. Now this necessarily means that we are dependent upon his spirit, We're not dependent upon the church sending us our record of contribution at the end of the year. We're not dependent upon our car being parked in that parking lot. We're not dependent upon uh, good, uh, faithful Sunday school attendance. We're not dependent upon uh, some kindly person coming up and saying, I always thought you were a schmuck, but it turns out you're a Christian and quite a good one at that. We're not dependent upon any of these things. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit communicating to us over and over and over again, Matt, you belong. John, you belong. Jesse, you belong. Sue, you belong. You are mine. I have purchased you by the blood of my son. You are mine. I hold you there by the strength of my spirit. Because of the spirit he has given us, we continue to abide. Look what he says. We have seen and testify that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. We cry out in very much the same way that John the Baptist did in chapter one and verse 29. Behold, the lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. Jesus, in coming to be the Savior, did so, not just for the sins of those horrible people that we see on the news and and that we pray for and that show up to uh, pro-choice rallies. Jesus Christ died to be our Savior. Not the Savior of some sin or some person that you you find despicable and you find them out there and in need of redemption, but he died for you. He died for the good, he died for the glutton. He died for the lazy, he died for the indifferent. He died for the one whose heart is so incredibly disinterested in him. This initiatory act of of love by our great God calling, prompting, begging us for response. He says, we've seen and we testify to witness God's love, to receive God's love, makes us those who can't shut up about it. You ever have a friend that gets a really good deal on something and just can't shut up about it? Like It's to the point where you go on Facebook and you unfollow them for a month or two and you wait to find something less offensive, less annoying. They start a business and and just every other post is about this. Every other post, everything they write is about that. They get a new car, and hey, you gotta come check out my car. Something happens in their life, and every conversation comes back to this. They get a new girlfriend, we always presumed that, that, that girls just weren't interested in them, but they get a new girlfriend, and it's, everything's like, check out my girlfriend, They're like, I thought she was imaginary. I didn't know she was real, and every conversation comes back to this. This should be us. This should be us. The love of God should be so incredibly intense in our lives that each encounter we have with people We should want to bring it back around to this because everything in our lives should revolve, not around fitting church in. Everything in our life should revolve on our identity in him, not our identity in anything else. Christian, you should be a Christ follower first and nothing else, not a Baptist, not a Republican, not a Democrat, not an independent, not a communist, Everything in your identity should flow from the fact that you follow Jesus, that God has made you alive. Our identity in Him should change who we are. We have seen, we have experienced, and we can't shut up about it. We testify that God has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. Look at 16. It's this amazing statement. He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. A different translation, a different way of looking at this is we have come to know and rely upon God's love for us. And I meet Christians all the time that in some sense they know this. They have this understanding that God is love. They have this kind of loose understanding out there somewhere back in the past that Jesus died for them for their sins, but moment by moment, day by day, they don't have a sense of his love for them. The picture John gives us here is needy people, daily dependent upon his love. Needy people, daily dependent upon his love. Can I tell you this? It's God's love, not our past success, that sustains us. It's God's love, not our past success it sustains us, we find ourselves having seen, we're testifying to it, and he says, we've come to know and to believe, to trust and to rely on that God has love for us. And then he comes back to the statement again, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's an amazing statement. You, Christian, are a recipient of God's love. You, you have this cherished possession. You have this thing that you couldn't buy, you couldn't work hard enough for, you couldn't barter for, you couldn't steal, you couldn't trick someone into getting. You couldn't put yourself in a privileged position of heirship to receive. You have received God's love on the basis of his free gift through the sacrifice of his son and you're stayed there by the power, the effective power of his Holy Spirit. Recognize the goodness of that. And we rest in it. Our God's love abides. It remains. It stays. And we are called to rest in that. You see, that from this position in verse 7 of loving one another, it's not this constant outflow of us and saying, I'm so tired. These people are so needy. They're so wanty. We find, we, wanting. We find ourselves as we rest in God's love, having the ability to let his love flow through us to other people. If you primarily love others through your own energy and efforts, it's exhausting and you're going to hate the person you love. It's exhausting and you're going to hate the person you love. In the beginning of a relationship with most people, we find it somewhat easy to love them. But the more we know them, the more taxing they become, right? A ridiculous example. Granted, a couple of years ago, we got a dog. First get the dog... He's amazing, kids love him, everybody wants to spend time with him, we tolerate a little bit of poop eating here and there, right, from the dog, come on now. (laughs) So we tolerate these things, but over time we recognize he's incredibly needy and I can't pay for dog counseling, and it gets difficult to excuse his bad behavior. It's the same thing with people. We meet somebody and, man, they're homeless, they lost their job, their relationship's terrible with their wife. They have some issue and they share it with us. Upon first hearing, we feel privileged. We delight that they trust us to share their discomfort. We delight that they want us to help them. Change our schedule, move finances around. We invest ourselves in them. They keep coming back to us. It's the same issue. They can't find a job. They can't find love. They can't just get along. They can't kick alcohol. They can't kick porn. They can't kick drugs. And so we kick them. It's just what we do. We kick them. Too needy. Want too much. No place for them in my life. So we place friendships, we place relationships on this carousel of acceptedness. This is what we want. This is what we want. We want people to come into our lives, express some need, we want to walk with them for a little while, and we want to see success in them. We see success in them, we see them move past this, we say, come on, walk with me, keep walking with me. We don't see success in them, we don't see them move past this, we leave them somewhere else. This is what we do as those who are supposed to love those around us. Or we find, or we find this is the case. Get somebody, they finally share something with us. And they are so relieved that someone has heard them. They are so relieved that someone is praying for them. They are so relieved that somebody's willing to walk with them. And so you're walking along. And all of a sudden the same thing happens to them again. And because they're not stupid. Because they recognize that most of us Christians are looking for the off-ramp of friendship when neediness kicks up. They don't say anything to us. They don't say, I've got this need again. They don't say, I've got this hurt again. They don't say, I'm really struggling with this again. They keep it quiet. And now they're dragging themselves along in this friendship. And eventually they just fall off because they don't want to be a burden to us. Let me just tell you this morning. You cannot carry your own burden. We are a family. Some of us are burdensome people. You're a burdensome people. Think about it this way. Our God has enabled someone around you to help you carry that burden. Talk to them. Share with them. Allow God to do the work in their heart to come alongside you to help you carry your burden. We need to share with each other. We don't need to not be afraid that some selfish, jerk Christian out there is gonna say, man, I don't have time for you. I don't, have, I don't have money for you. I don't have a care for you. Who cares if that's what they say? Our God calls us to be incredibly enmeshed and involved and intertwined in one another's lives, and that is messy. Unless you're an only child and your parents died and you have no friends around you, recognize this. Relationships with other people are messy. Would everybody agree and attest to that? Amen? Like, relationships with people are messy. That's why I only have computer friends, right? How are you? I bud. right? That's all I want my friends to say. Hey, what's up? Everything is good. Please don't talk to me again. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. I'll see you next week. Relationships are difficult. We recognize in this that as we abide together with one another, God calls us in loving one another to patiently endure sufferings alongside, to come along undergird support that we might be lifting up the arms of our brother in Christ, that the next week he might come alongside and be lifting up our arm recognize as well that the love that John writes in here, it it not only abides, but it is an assured love. It's not this tenuous love where God would come in and, and pull the carpet out from underneath you to say, you were doing really well there in the beginning, but you apparently are an idiot. Salvation no longer abides for you. Salvation no longer remains for you. Some of us go through life with this tremendous sense of trepidation and fear that God or somebody close to us is gonna figure out that we are a fraud and a failure and they're gonna want nothing to do with us. John writes and he says, you need to understand, verse 17, this love is perfected with us And that because it's perfected we may have confidence for the day of judgment because because as he is so also are we in the world because Jesus is righteous and we have received his righteousness that we recognize even though Hebrews 9.27 tells us that there is coming a day of judgment that all of us have to proclaim and to give evidence on the basis of where we have found our salvation that if you are a Christian there is no reason to fear. Some of us whether we grew up in an abusive home or we just suppose that God is this abusive guy that sits on a throne that's waiting for us to step out of line and smack us back in. Recognize, Christian, there is no reason to fear. He calls you to walk in freedom and in the free embrace of his love. Verse 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, and that is the love we have received from our heavenly Father, amen? He says, fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfective in love. Some of us, the reason we quake and shake at the thought of God is because we haven't fully received his love for us. We've received the idea of forgiveness, we've received the idea of a good and benevolent God, but we have not yet freely received it for ourselves. We presume like this model of friendship that God is willing to walk with us and is greatly enduring our failures, but there's coming a time when he might choose to cast us off and be done with us. If you have put your full faith and confidence in Jesus Christ and the redemptive work that he accomplished on the cross for you, and you are resting in his goodness and not you're adding on top of it, there is no reason to fear. There is no reason to fear, and his love is driving you to rest in the comfort of his embrace. Look at the last thing here in verses 19 and 20. We recognize that his love is responsive. His love is responsive. We love because he first loved us, and if anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he is a liar, anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. And we talked and discussed a few weeks back, and this is the way we described hate and love. Hate is not actively seeking to do something mean or ugly or uh, revengeful to someone. That's an easy definition. Like, most of us can avoid this, right? Some of you can't, obviously. But hate is the refusal to extend love. And all of us are guilty of this, many times over the course of our life. And many of us find ourselves in the midst of situations with people where we're doing this mental calculus of what time is it and how much time do I have, and man, they're gonna be such a burden, and they stink, good Lord, they stink. This is the fifth time they've called me, and I'm just gonna let that go to voicemail. This is the third time they've asked me for this and I may not know how the conversation's gonna go and I just, I just don't have it in me. John hits us with this incredibly devastating teaching. If we communicate to people that we love God but we don't love our brother, he tells us we're a liar. And can I tell you, this may seem really harsh to you and you may hear this and say, well, that's just not fair, they don't know my brother. That's not the point. Each of us have people in our lives that if we did everything they asked us to, we'd spend every hour of every day serving them. And that's a separate conversation, that's not what he's talking about. By and large, we seek to engage in relationship with people who don't need anything from us and to fill our time enjoying their presence. But I want you to understand the weight and severity of what John says. As he's already told us and we know through reading the Bible or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, no one has ever seen God. We do not see God. It's not like I walk into my living room and be like, God's in the red chair again. I'm never going to get to sit there. Come on, man. Could you move to the couch? You know I like the red chair. Like, this doesn't happen. This isn't normal. That would be abnormal. That would be weird. So John's deal is, we see people every day. We see them at the grocery store. We see them in our homes. We see them in our communities. We see them at church on Sunday. You see, you know the people around you. If you are unable to love the people around you, you have no ability and no right to freely claim that you love God. This is devastating. This is incredibly challenging. Because we go back and we think to the command in verse 7, love one another. And we say, I can totally do this. I got this in spades. We look at, chapter, at verse 21 that says, this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And we think that's okay. But then we, then we hear this and we add to this, if you claim to love God and you don't love those around you, you are a liar. And add to this, you're probably not a Christian. It's hard. can think of dozens of examples in my life where I had a real sense that somebody had a need had a want. They wanted my attendance. They wanted my presence. They wanted my ear. They wanted some money, some cash I had on me. I'm telling you this. I just walked by. Let it go to voicemail. I just passed on by. Because it was going to cost something for me. Love cost something of us. If you're going to claim that you love God, that there is no evidence that you love the people around you, do this for me. Stop. Stop telling people you're a Christian. Stop thinking you're a Christian. You get alone with God. You confess your indifference You confess your apathy. You go to him and you say, I don't care. I don't care that I don't care, but I read in your word that's not right. I need you to change my heart so that when I tell people that I love you, they see it in a way that I love everybody around me. And when we do that, and when the churches of our community do that, they will see God. If we're going to love one another, there's going to be a real sacrifice for us. But if we're going to love one another, we're going to be true to what God calls us to be. And that is it. the only thing we can do is those who claim to be forgiven and free believers in faith of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning, I pray that you would work in our hearts. God, I have had a week to struggle with this, to be broken over this. And for many of us, it's the first time we've heard this, thought about this. tempted to move into rationalization to think oh this isn't such a big deal I can avoid this in my life and the best thing I can do is just give those people tough love so God I'm praying for your Holy Spirit to convince us of what it looks like for each and every one of us to boldly love not the weak, anemic form of love that is easy for us, but what it looks like when we are broken before you, laying everything out to you. Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to love those that you love. I want to give to them what you would have me to give to them. Help us to live lives with open hands, open hearts, submitting all things to the power of your spirit. God, just as we are called to love other Christians in this passage, recognize that there are people probably in this room who have never received your love. So Father, this morning, I pray that your spirit would bring conviction that it would tell them what is right and what is wrong. That they have trespassed against the holy God, that they've broken your law. God, that they would repent, that they would turn away from following themselves and following their heart, and that they would seek to give their life to Jesus. They would cry out, Father, forgive me. So God, would you send your spirit into this place to lead us as we worship? Would you lead your spirit to prompt us to apply the truth of your text to our hearts? And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.